The Nickelodeon was kid everything. But that marked one of the darkest chapters. Three predators worked at Nickelodeon all in a short amount of time. You get comfortable with people until you're not. It made me wonder who was being hurt. Have you ever told your story publicly before? Quiet on set, an ID true crime event, Sunday at 9 on ID and stream on Max. Tonight on Dateline. We were taking a walk and we heard sirens going out. He said that he was found beaten to death. Everybody left Corey. They broke our family. You look at this crime scene, this is rage. There is no physical evidence. There wasn't that fingerprint, there wasn't that DNA. The investigation ran cold. I need something that could make a difference. The new information is this nine-year-old girl seeing this strange thing going on. Right, what we called the confession seance. There were candles lit. She was sobbing and saying, I'm so sorry. You hear this story and you say, who, how, what? A murder with so few clues. A town with so many secrets. Nice, sweet, quiet little middle America. The things that can go on. I'm Lester Holt, and this is Dateline. Here's Keith Morrison with the Black Candle Confession. It was late, too late, for little nine-year-old girls to be awake. Even on a sleepover, so close to Halloween... Upstairs in the old farmhouse, they opened the bedroom door, suppressed their giggles, sneaked into the dark hallway. They tiptoed to the back staircase, and, eyes wide, feeling naughty, crept down toward the gloom of the living room. And that's when it happened, when they saw her. There was a woman down there, lighting candles, black candles, and crying and sobbing apologizing to a man those little girls knew was dead. Terrifying. They scampered back upstairs. And the night passed, and then days, and years, and many years. And the terrible secret was buried deep in the prairie soil, and in one little girl's memory. But to begin at the beginning, just a few weeks before that scary night in the farmhouse, it had been a glorious fall. Orange on the ground, blue overhead. A little town called West Liberty, Iowa. It was October 13th, 1992, 6 o'clock in the evening. Hi, I need somebody to come out to my house. I think my fiancé is dead. The voice you hear belongs to Jody Hutz. She was 22 back then, a bank teller. She told 911 she had just arrived home from work to find the dog wandering outside. And inside, she'd found her fiancé lying motionless on the bedroom floor. Why do you think he might be dead? Because he's all sweaty and he's not breathing and he's cold. Has he shot himself or anything? I, I don't think so. I don't have it looked around. There's nothing there. Okay, Jody, I'm going to put you on hold so I can get the people going, okay? Okay. C.J. Ryan was a 27-year-old investigator in 1992. 
He was one of the first to respond, first to talk to Jody. She's in shock about what has taken place. She doesn't know why this took place, but she was very, very legitimately upset. Or seemed to you to be legitimately upset. Yes. Sadly, murders happen everywhere, even in rural Iowa. And Ryan knew as soon as he walked into the bedroom, this was murder. As brutal as any he'd ever seen. Found the victim laying face down on the floor in the master bedroom and obviously deceased. Blood was spattered everywhere. There was no gun present, no sign of shooting or stabbing. No, this powerful young man had been beaten to a pulp. Must have been attacked while he slept and bludgeoned to the floor. Somebody really, really mad at him and just kept hitting him and hitting him until he was dead. Yeah, when you look at a crime scene like this, you can tell that there's a lot of anger, a lot of anger inside somebody to do something like that. Anger? Oh, yes. This was certainly personal. This is one of those moments when you go, well, there's like 40,000 people that live in the county. I bet one of them did it. And you just don't know who at that point. But the victim, the dead man, he was very well known, in part for reasons which were going to complicate matters. His name was Corey Winnicky. He was 22 years old. And he was a ladies' man. Jody, outside now, shivering in the cold, was Corey's fiance. She was calling the people who needed to know, like Corey's mom, Susie Winnicky. And of course, she was hysterical and. And I just couldn't believe it. I said, I'll just be right there. And, Did it make any sense what you were saying? No, the I, it took me hardly any time to get there. But by then already, they had it blocked off and stuff, the house. I, was, I couldn't go in. And Well, you're a mother. You want to rush in and see your child. Yeah, I want to hold him one more time. I don't care what he looked like. Yeah, you know. they wouldn't let you go. No. Jim Winnicky, Corey's father, had been away on a business trip when all this happened. Out of touch. In 1992, of course, people didn't carry around cell phones, so Jim didn't find out his only child had been murdered until he pulled into his driveway that night. We pulled to my house, so here's 20 cars there, and I'm going, what? what's going on? And I got out, of course, and I was told that. So I can't pretty... imagine. Can't imagine. Well, our life has never been the same. Later that evening, a police cruiser dropped fiancé Jody off at a friend's house. And Crease. She was just a wreck, and we couldn't believe that he was gone. And she didn't even know exactly how he had been killed because she said when she walked in the room, there was just blood everywhere. She was so distraught and so upset. Yeah, I'll never forget that night. That night, a harvest moon illuminated the rooftops of West Liberty, Iowa. But beneath those roofs, talk had turned to murder and the kinds of things some people do when they think no one is looking. When we come back, what had happened to Corey? A critical tip from a local reporter. He said, hey, I think you might want to come look at this. And later, Corey was engaged, but turns out not exclusive. He was messing around with this one this one from another town, you know.
Every death is tragic for somebody. But the brutal murder of 22-year-old Corey Winnicky packed a punch felt by nearly every one of the 2,000-plus souls living in West Liberty, Iowa. Not only was Corey young and just starting out, the whole town had watched him grow up. In high school, Corey had been the football standout who started dating his fiancée Jody back when she was a cheerleader. They were good as a couple. A young golden couple, I would think. Yeah. I mean, she was very pretty. He was a high school football And he star. was the life of the party. That was his personality. Yeah. He was always the fun-loving one. While many of his classmates went off to college, Corey stayed behind and joined the Winnicky family business, a popular bar called Winks. Corey's cousin, Clint Smith, loved the place. If you just wanted to get out and escape and just have a drink with friends or family. That's where you went. Yeah. Winks was West Liberty's version of the bar and the old TV show, Cheers. Place where everybody knows your name. Corey, like the Ted Danson character Sam Malone, tended bar and held court. The first thing I did when I drove into town, I'd go straight to the bar, huh. say hi and have a beer. People said he was a natural in that bar. He just was friendly with everybody, yep. and they all liked him. Yes, he was. Built like a sequoia with biceps, and blessed with a smile that caused women to pay attention. Yeah, he was a ladies' fan. You just had that From smile. From early on? Yeah, yeah. There's just something about him. He's just this, very smooth. Mm -hmm. And just had a poise about him that would everybody was attracted to him. You'd want to gravitate towards him. Mm -hmm. You know, just want to be with him. Yeah, absolutely. Just happy in the smile, and you were his best friend, and you could be a stranger. He'd give me a hug and kiss every time I went into Winks. Yeah, and yes. I love you, Mom. He didn't care if people yeah. called him a mama's boy. <laughs> I liked it because <laughs> he was our only child. Yeah. You know. In many ways, Corey Winicky remained a kid at heart. Jesse Becker grew up down the street from Corey's parents and thought of him as a kind of big brother. We would ride our bikes up the street uh, to his parents' house, and Corey might be out in their driveway working on his car or washing his car um, or with his dog, Casey. The fridge in the garage was always stocked with pop or ice cream, and mm. Corey shared with us. Um, <laughs> so we would maybe make excessive trips to go see Corey for I can imagine that. Yeah. pop and ice cream. But was he one of those guys who was, some, some people are like magnets for kids and dogs, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that was definitely Corey. Who on earth would want to murder a man like that? Well, first place you'd look for clues, the place it happened. And all night, investigators scoured that little house for footprints, or fingerprints, or anything that looked like a clue. But, slim pickings. Well, there wasn't anything of great significance that was found at, at the crime scene. And you have to understand that it's about six o'clock at night when this mm -hmm. crime's discovered and it's fall in Iowa. So it's dark. The next day, a local TV reporter approached the yellow crime tape. He'd spotted something curious just up the road. He made his way down to the crime scene and spoke with an investigator and said, hey, I think you might want to come look at this. About a half mile down the gravel drive that led to the house, the reporter had noticed a baseball bat by the side of the road. Just laying there. Just laying there. Like somebody threw it out of a truck or something. Yeah, it was obviously discarded out of a vehicle that was driving down the road. What did you think when that came along? It was obvious to us that, the, that it, this was a murder weapon. It was covered in blood. 
It was secured. It was taken by the DCI as evidence in this case. They checked the bat for fingerprints, got none, and they tested the blood to see what type it was. It was Corey's type. But DNA? Not back then. You have to understand that 1992 technology was not that great. Yeah, man, how things have changed. This was not an investigation of technology. This was an investigation of shoe leather. At that point, there was really only one place shoe leather could take him. And that was Winks, the bar at the center of Corey Winnicky's life. A place where a few shots of alcohol stirred with a dash of anger might be a lethal cocktail, perhaps. Coming up, at Winks, investigators start asking questions. Could this be a situation that involved gambling? Mm -hmm. Could this be a situation that involved illegal drugs? And then there was Corey's reputation as a ladies' man. Jealousy is a powerful motivator. When Dateline continues. Corey Winnicky worked the late shift. He started with the after-work, happy-hour crowd at five and closed up when the last of the hardcore headed home at two. In between, he worked the width and length of that bar like an empresario, serving suds and cracking jokes. Was he a big drinker? Yeah, you know, uh, he has been described as a heavy drinker in, in relation to this case. He was a 22-year-old that was yeah. running a bar. Detective Ryan figured if anybody had a beef with Corey, somebody in here would know about it. So there was a lot of people to talk to because it's a high-traffic place. Were you able to find out if anything else was going on in here besides just drinking beer? And well, there were certain aspects of the investigation that were brought up. Uh, could this be a situation that involved gambling? Uh -huh. Could this be a situation that involved illegal drugs? The problem was separating fact from rumor. Opinion that rang true in a midnight bar tended to clank like empty tin cans in the unkind light of morning. No one was portraying Corey as a drug dealer. He was just involved with people that used recreational drugs. He used recreational drugs. The same was true of those gambling debt rumors. Nothing there. But investigations at the bar revealed that Corey did seem to have a kind of addiction. And that was women. There was a group of, of women that he was involved with. Uh, <laughs> in a small town, how do you do that? I mean, they'd all know about each other, wouldn't they? Well, evidently it was possible. Huh. There was a group of other women, uh, several other individuals that he was involved with. Messing around with other women while a fiancé or wife waits at home has been known to shorten a man's life expectancy. But Clint Smith said his cousin had a one-track mind whenever the clock ticked toward closing time. Did he tell you a lot about these girlfriends of his? Um, he did. And that he was messing around with this one, this one from another town, you know. Did he tell you how he managed to do that? <sighs> time management. <laughs> Corey's philandering ways were the stuff of legend in West Liberty. Whispered legend, that is. His list of conquests read like a roster. Single women, women with children, women from other towns. So a detective looking for motive probably wouldn't have far to look. Jody, of course. The fiance he'd been cheating on, 
Also, the last person known to have seen the victim alive and the person who called 911. Where do you think he might be dead? He says he's all sweaty and he's not breathing and he's cold. The cops questioned her at her house not long after that call. Jody's story was short and to the point. She'd last seen Corey at 8.15 on the morning of October 13, 1992, when she left for her job at a local bank. And the next time she saw him at 6 that evening, he was dead. To Ryan's eye, Jody did not look like a killer, standing there outside the murder scene, shivering in the cold. Was it more her, her demeanor or her alibi, or what was it? Well, I believed her demeanor when I showed up, but that's not enough. No, not nearly enough. There would be more questions for her and everybody she worked with, for everybody who knew her. But for now, they let her go. They dropped Jody off at my house. No shoes, in a wool blanket, couldn't have her purse, because of course they're thinking she might have something to do with it. They'd already been talking to her, right? Mm -hmm. Questioning her. Oh yeah, oh yeah. At the very least, they were wondering, did Jody, the fiance, know about all of Corey's fooling around? Well, yes, she did, said Jody's friend, Anne. I know Jody knew about it because I had told her, um, but she still stuck by him. She was committed to making that relationship work. And you didn't wonder why she stayed with the guy when he was doing that? No, I just think she loved him that much. I do. Normally, it's the guy who kills the woman, frankly, who's involved with other relationships, but the reverse does occur. Right. Jealousy is a powerful motivator, and it's always something that you look at as a motive in a case like this. But jealousy was not the only emotion in play. Lust, pride, anger were just a few of the deadly sins investigators found festering that fall in West Liberty, Iowa. Coming up, Detectives learned Corey had fathered a child by one of his girlfriends, and his fiancée knew. That'd be a hard pill for her to swallow. Very hard pill. Meanwhile, another girlfriend admits to how crazy she was about Corey. She would tell us that there were plans where her and Corey were going to go to Missouri. It was kind of her happily ever after. everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Hey guys, Willie Geist here, reminding you to check out the Sunday Sit-Down Podcast. On this week's episode, I get together with seven-time Grammy winner Casey Musgraves to talk about the inspiration for her new album, the process she uses to write those beautiful songs, and finding success while bucking convention in Nashville. You can get our conversation now for free wherever you download your podcasts. Every so often, there comes an event so momentous that lifetimes are neatly cleaved into two parts, before and after. The killing of Corey Winicky was one of those moments 
in West Liberty, Iowa. If you were to ask, um, you know, someone who was nine, you know, September 11th, um, I, I'm sure that, that they can tell you exactly where they were and how they felt and uh, what they were doing at that moment. It's comparable to that. It's one of those moments in life that... The loss of Corey was a big point for you. No, absolutely. And then, around town, shock blended somehow with whispered suspicions. After all, his fiancée, Jody, had reason to be very angry. Corey had been cheating, and not just with one woman, with several of the ladies who loved the bar. And him. In fact, it was an open secret that Corey had fathered a child with one of them, a woman named Wendy. And I really don't know what Corey told Jody or what his excuse to her was. And they didn't really, as a couple, talk about it, like, when we were around. But I did have to tell her. So what, how, how did she take that? I know she was upset. But sometimes she's good at holding her feelings in. Even when Wendy was pregnant? Was there any doubt about who the child was? I mean, it was all, you know, hearsay, but I mean, everybody was saying it was Corey's. That'd be a hard pill for her to swallow. Mm-hmm. Very hard pill. Gossip, like social media, can be blunt, cruel. And certainly investigators had to check out Jody's alibi. The cops felt they had a rough idea of when Corey was killed, thanks to a sharp-eyed neighbor. There was a blue and silver bat that was laying about, oh, right in here, about half out on the gravel, half in the grass. John Schneider is a farmer. Said he often drives this piece of gravel road during harvest time. I was driving by that morning, and it wasn't there. And when I come back in the afternoon, it was laying there. According to Schneider, it was 9.30 when he drove by the first time, 1.30 when he came by the second time, and saw that bat, the murder weapon, on the side of the road. So that narrowed our time frame down to four hours. If he's right, you know the time of death. Yeah, if he's right, we now have a four-hour time frame to work with. A time frame during which Jody had a solid alibi. She had been at work during the day, and everyone that we talked to, all of their stories were corroborated. So we were able to corroborate her timeline and corroborate her story on where she was. And so the detective told Jody she was cleared. And within days, she left town, left the whispers behind, moved out of state to be closer to her parents, which only fueled the gossip. Everybody was hurt by it. Did that increase the sort of idea that she might know what happened or have something to do with it. Yes, it intensified it, definitely. But investigators knew she was an innocent woman, and so they moved on. There were others, they figured, who could have been on that rural road between 9.30 and 1.30 with a baseball bat and a motive. A jilted woman, an angry boyfriend. What about Wendy, a woman who was rumored to have had Corey's baby? Was she homicidally jealous? Investigators brought her in, sat her down, asked her some very personal questions. And that's when she told them, yes, Corey Winnicky had fathered her baby. But... You know, when you talk to Wendy, she says, I have the realization that, that Corey's not going to leave Jody, that that's not going to happen. Did she have a job? Did she have a... Yeah, Wendy had a blue-collar job. Uh, 
the bar was very popular with the blue collar workforce. That's how she ended up meeting Corey. And so her, her relationship with Corey was the best that it could be for her at that mm-hmm. point in time, even though she had a realization that there were certainly limitations on how far that would go. And anyway, she could prove she wasn't on that road that morning. But there were other women, remember? At 29, Annette Hazen was older than the rest. She was a single mom, two kids. And unlike Wendy, Annette seemed to think she had a future with Corey. She would tell us that there were plans where her and Corey were going to leave and go to Missouri and buy a bar in Missouri. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of her happily ever after ending that she was describing. But when you talk to other people involved in the investigation, people would tell you that that's a fantasy. That's never going to happen. Hmm. Like what other people? Corey's close friends, uh, even other women that he was involved with. But deluded about Corey or not, Annette was dedicated and made it very clear to the police she was determined to find out who killed the man she loved. She wouldn't wait to be contacted by investigators. She'd be coming in and making contact with investigators. Annette came right out with the story about Corey's last night alive. She saw him in the bar, she said, and then after he closed down, he came by her house for sex. And that, she said, was the last time she saw him. She had an alibi for the time of the killing. She was running errands with her sister-in-law. And when the cops gave her a polygraph, she passed. Did you record the interviews with her at that point? I don't think that those interviews were recorded. It's 1992, Keith. That's right. I know, I know. And that had tips for investigators, possible suspects, guys who might have it in for Corey. But none of her tips, or anyone else's, went anywhere. The investigation of the murder of Corey Winicky was hitting a dead end. Coming up, for Corey's parents, a bolt from the blue surprise. She called me that day and she was excited and I was happy. And then, could this case be cracked by a most unlikely encounter? If you were going to write a book about this, I don't know if you could get anybody to believe you how this meeting took place. When Dateline continues. It was not for want of trying that the Corey Winicky murder case went cold. C.J. Ryan and his partner investigators had given it their all and then some. There were hundreds of interviews that were conducted in connection with this investigation. Because you couldn't just quite nail it down. No, it had gone as far as what we could take it. And gradually, the Winickys lost hope. We were just almost at the point where we were going to reconcile that, that we never would never find. We'd never have it solved. Corey's cousin struggled with the not knowing. When there's no closure, it's probably one of the most painful, sought-after, you know, things on the planet. You want that closure. Of course, Winks, the family-owned watering hole where Corey had tended bar and charmed the ladies, was never the same after. It, it broke our family. 
It was very, very hard. There wasn't that quarry, there wasn't that smile, there's something missing. Was it, was it a subject conversation at family gatherings? It's not so much because it just, it, it, it brought fueled, it fueled anger in a sense to where it, it, you don't really want to bring that up to my uncle or have him start thinking about that because it's so painful. Of course. You know. For Jody too, who'd intended to marry Corey, and instead became a target of gossip and misplaced suspicion. But the people who would have become her in-laws understood. It was not guilt, but grief that made her leave town so suddenly. And I, I don't blame her for that. I, I think get, I would have too. I think she no family here. She'd keep out um, of. She'd be away from it. I think she thought leaving would solve the thing of getting away from it. It wouldn't follow her, and she could maybe forget. But it doesn't work that way. No, things work the way they always have to bring grief and sometimes joy. Soon after Corey's death, his parents learned that Jody was pregnant. What did you think when you heard that? What, what a strange... Was really happy she called me that day, and she was excited, and I was happy. Jody gave birth to a sweet baby girl the next summer. A memory, a piece of Corey. As if at least some good thing will come well, out of this terrible something tragedy. something left of Corey, you know. It was like pain medication, seeing Corey's baby girl. They could be happy in her presence. We saw her a few times, you know, wouldn't come back. And, and we went and out we, before we she was married. Before she was married, married to, remarried. Yeah, she got married. Well, she'd never been married, so she got married right. well, to one of Corey's married, best friends. And then things kind of changed. They saw their granddaughter less and less after that. And then, not at all. That's still painful. Isn't That's it? bad because, yeah, everybody wants to be grandparents. <laughs> so, yep, we lost a lot. Why? Jody's friend, Ann Crease, said she thinks she knows. I think she just wanted to protect her. And maybe that was the only way she knew how, was to keep her away from this area or maybe away from the Winnicky family. And that's how it was for years, unrequited sorrow. For all their efforts and hundreds of interviews, investigators had only this, a murder weapon covered in the victim's blood, and a rough idea of when the killer left it on the side of that country road. But who? The question trailed C.J. Ryan as he rose through the ranks of the Muscatine County Sheriff's Office, from captain to chief deputy, to the top job, sheriff. It's one of those things that always bothers you because it's a case that didn't close. But he never forgot a promise he made to Corey's parents. And the promise was, we're never gonna quit on this. We're not gonna give up on this case. And that's what I always told them. And I think that's what they believed. They had to hang on to something. They did. You hope that somebody's going to walk in the door. You hope that you're going to get that phone call and they're going to say, I, I just can't live with this anymore. I have to tell you what went on here. And then it happened. It was 2017, 25 years after Corey's murder. It wasn't a phone call exactly, 
No, it's much more unlikely than that, as if the stars had suddenly aligned on one of the strangest stories the sheriff had ever heard. If you were going to write a book about this, I don't know if you could get anybody to believe you how this meeting took place. It's a place. one in a million thing. Yeah. It was a one in a million thing. Coming up, a cold case about to heat up thanks to one woman's eerie childhood memory. There were candles lit and she was sobbing and saying, Corey, I didn't mean to hurt you. It was a morning in 2017, inside a major hospital in one of the largest intensive care units in the state of Iowa. The nurse in charge was Jessie Becker. Yes, that Jessie Becker, Corey Winnicky's young neighbor from West Liberty. You still live there? Yep. All grown up now, a charge nurse who fell in love with the organized chaos of emergency medicine. And that afternoon, she had a problem to solve in her ICU. Put me there. What was going on? Um, well, I walked into um, one of the bays, and there was a gentleman leaning up against the desk. And I didn't recognize him as a family member or a visitor that we'd had. The gentleman was Detective Trent Valletta from Iowa's Division of Criminal Investigations. Why were you there? I was there uh, to interview the victim of an attempted murder, and the doctors were working on the person I wanted to talk to, so I was just leaning up against the nurse's station. Were you supposed to be there? Well, if I had a police uniform on, it would be a lot more reasonable for me to be there. I introduced myself first, and then I asked him who he was there to see. You're putting it very politely. You're essentially saying, what the heck are you doing here? Get out. Right, and he, he picked up on that. He knew he was about two seconds from being asked to go to the waiting area. Uh -huh. But um, he told me that he was um, with DCI. Hmm. And I said, that's great. Um, can I see your credentials? Um, and he told me that he actually focuses more on cold cases. And so knowing that we were just chatting and I brought up the Winnicky case and asked him if he was familiar with it. The 25-year-old Corey Winnicky case. I had not heard of it. I said no. And uh, she said, well, do you know anybody that works on cold cases in the DCI? And I said, well, I think I'm the only one. There's realistically two of us in the state that work on them. That's it? The whole state? In the state, yes. You're a lonely guy with a, with a big file. I'm lonely, but I know how to beg for help. So she was interested in the fact that you were a detective. She was. She was interested not just because the unsolved murder had been a defining moment. No, Jessie had something more to say. She followed up with the question, what kind of value do I place in the statement of a nine-year-old girl? Of course, that little girl who saw and heard something strange in that old farmhouse back in 1992, that was Jessie. She was the nine-year-old girl. The detective obviously couldn't know that, but he worked cold cases. He seemed nice, so... I thought, well, you know, I can share with this gentleman what I know um, to take that knowledge that I've carried for all of these years. So she told him the story we told you back at the beginning about the night just before Halloween and just after the murder of Corey Winnicky. 
about the sleepover at her friend Kayla's house, the old farmhouse on the outskirts of town, and how, late at night, she and Kayla sneaked into the dark upstairs hallway and tiptoed down a back staircase. You were supposed to be in bed asleep. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we were sneaking downstairs for something. And that's when they heard that woman. Crying and sobbing, and um, there were candles lit, and she was you know, sobbing and saying, Corey, I am so sorry. You know, Corey, I love you. Corey, I didn't mean to hurt you. Corey, I never meant to kill you. Yeah. That's pretty shocking. It was. You sure that's what you heard? I am, absolutely. Were these any unusual kind of candles or something? Uh, there were black candles. They scurried back upstairs. And back up to Kayla's room. And I tried to talk to her about it, but she was not interested in discussing it. The next morning, Jessie went home, talked to her mother, who told her daughter, don't worry, the police will take care of it. So, Jessie kept it to herself, through her teens and into adulthood. Once, when she was 22, she tried telling a local cop, but that went nowhere. But the secret wouldn't let her go. The things she knew about the murder of Corey Winicky. Did you feel guilty about it? Or I did. Absolutely, I did. Was it your assumption that this would just be forgotten by time? Um, I had hoped not, but I didn't know the right avenue to take the information that I had. But was this stranger in the ICU the right avenue? Would he believe her? This had been a quarter century earlier, mm -hmm. and you were nine years old. Yes. Did you really think anybody would take you seriously? I didn't know. I mean, I had hoped so. Because it was re had been bugging you all these Oh, yes, yes. But wonder of wonders, he listened intently. Detective Valletta had never heard of Corey Winicky or Black Candles. To him, it sounded like a scene out of an old Dracula movie. So there's a lot of question marks all, all of a sudden going on in yeah. my head. Um, the biggest one is, why is she telling me this now? Sure. Did you ask her that? I just took a very basic story from her. I'm thinking, wow, she looks like a great witness to a, mm -hmm. to a very old homicide. Which you didn't even know about. And I had no idea what the circumstances were of that Another case. Another little drawback if you're going to talk to her about it. A big disadvantage. But pull the string on a story of murder and all manner of secrets unraveled might finally come tumbling out. Coming up in our second hour, Jesse's memory could be a game changer. But can cops trust it? I called another agent, and the conversation was, I need someone to come down and tell me that you believe Jesse like I do. And later, this case will go from cold to confounding. You hear this story, and you say, what happened? Who? What? Repeat that. When Dateline continues. Iowa detective Trent Valletta was hooked on that story about the autumn night on this long, desolate road in this old farmhouse. The disturbing things a nine-year-old Jesse still remembered. That woman speaking to the dead, lighting black candles, apparently crying about killing a man Jesse knew. 
Corey Winicky, whose 25-year-old murder was still unsolved. You know, Corey, I love you. Corey, I didn't mean to hurt you. Corey, I never meant to kill you. That's pretty shocking. It was. And the truly amazing thing was that Valletta, Iowa's leading cold case detective, got to hear the story at all. Pure chance, really. The University of Iowa's a giant hospital. Uh-huh. There's, um, I think I was told at one point, between 10 and 20,000 people wow. at the hospital at any given time. So for Jesse and I to run into each other is, is uh, pretty amazing. They didn't talk long, the detective and Jesse. Both had important business in that busy ICU. Did you tell them the whole story? A brief um, synopsis of it um, right there that day. I had to get back to, to patient sure. care. But what the detective did here sounded true, real, to him anyway. Would it to anyone else? So I called another agent, John Turbot, and the conversation I had with John was, I need someone to come down and tell me that, that you believe Jesse like I do. Why John Turbot? He's kind of a nationally recognized inter- interview and interrogation expert. He's also uh, very likable. People trust him. And I thought between the two of us, we could determine um, how credible Jesse was. I can tell immediately she's respected. She's kind. I'm shaking hands with her. She's walking us through her place of work, and I'm watching her interact with her peers. It was a few weeks later when the three of them sat in the hospital conference room while Jesse told the story again talked about the woman she heard and saw. Jessie knew her well. She was her friend Kayla's aunt, and she lived in the old farmhouse with her friend's family. She was the fun aunt that took us to the video store, would take us in and get pizzas, um, rent the scary movies that our parents may not have Mm -hmm. um, allowed. You liked her. I did, absolutely. The fun auntie's name, Annette. Annette Hazen. Nine-year-old Jessie had no idea at the time, but she was the very same Annette who'd been one of the women sleeping with Corey. In the cold case world, this is really fascinating because essentially I get to start off with a confession. So you've got that. What do you do with it? Now I have to learn about the case. Um, At this point, all I really have is um, knowledge that Annette is a viable suspect. It's not like Felice hadn't looked at Annette hard. After all, as one of Corey's women, she had reason to be jealous. But back in 1992, there'd been no evidence to connect her to the crime. And besides, she'd always been so cooperative. And Jessie's story, her memory? Memory, as everybody knows, can be tricky. First observations, Jessie Becker seems like a, a human being who would you know, not make something up. Now, she may, the other option is she completely believes what she's telling us, and it didn't, and it didn't happen. One of the things we ask her is, Jesse, who else did you share this with? At the time. At that time. And she said, she told her mother. I asked her, you know, why would someone light black candles? And she told me, well, that some people, you know, believe that, um, you know, they're associated with evil spirits. That's not a question that kids normally ask right, their parents. Right, yes. And she was ready with an answer. She asked why I was asking, and then I told her what I'd heard Annette say. And she was definitely, you know, caught off guard by that. So, right away, the detectives went to talk to Jesse's mother. You didn't have to be reminded that's no. a memory you carried with you? Yes. 
exactly the story Jessie told when she got home from the sleepover, said Cynthia. That Annette was burning black candles and talking to Corey. Corey's dead. She couldn't be talking to Corey. She was spirit. I don't know. Um, she was telling Corey that she was sorry, that she never meant to hurt him, that she didn't mean to kill him, um, that she loved him. And yes, she admitted, she did tell Jesse, keep quiet about it. I told her that there were investigators and there were, you know, the police and the sheriff were working on Corey's murder and that they would, they would find out who had killed him. Do you remember what you thought or what you felt like when she said that to you? I felt helpless. Because she was afraid to tell the police. Why? For one thing, Annette's uncle was sheriff. Sheriff of the department investigating the murder. Wouldn't he protect Annette? But mostly, Cynthia told investigators she was afraid of her ex-husband. I was a single mom with two small children. I was scared of my ex-husband. He was good friends with Annette and her family and stayed out at their house a lot. Was he having an affair with Annette? Um, he was for a few months. Jesse's mom uh, made the determination that if they were to bring this information forward, that he may, due to his loyalty to Annette, retaliate. He may hurt her or Jesse or even Jesse's brother. Did she tell you not to tell anybody else? No, I don't think she ever said not mm. to. But you figured, mm, okay. It, yeah. Maybe I better just shut up about this. Right. If my mother was scared to act on it, um, then... Yeah. So for all those years, Cynthia waited by guilt for how her silence had hurt Corey's parents said nothing. It ate me inside because Corey's parents lived just... I have to drive past their home every day to go to work. When they find out that I know this information, they're going to hate me. They're going to hate me because I knew this information for 27 years and never said anything. You must have worried about that a lot. Yeah. But police had heard it all now. So, next step, talk to Annette. And she, they discovered, hadn't gone very far. She still lived near West Liberty. The detectives did not call ahead. They just walked up and knocked on the door. Coming up, Annette opens up with seemingly nothing to hide. How many times do you think you had sex with Corey? Three, four, five times a week. Okay. A lot. But one thing she says will unsettle investigators. Boy, that's some um, talk about raising flags. was opportunity and peril in what would have to come next. That is, confronting Annette based on Jesse Becker's bombshell. This is big news. This is a confession to a murder. But can any 25-year-old memory so specific, so dramatic, be entirely correct? Ask any married couple. Memory is a notorious trickster. And in a police investigation, you have to be sure. And besides, when they began pouring through the old case file, the investigators found a portrait of a friendly, cooperative Annette, a woman with a detailed alibi backed up by her sister-in-law. 
she'd passed a polygraph and had been so helpful with suggestions and tips for the police. And in that case, she wants to be cooperative. She's always been cooperative, more than happy to sit down with the investigators. And now, she was married, went by Annette Cahill, and still in her mid-50s, a grandmother of four, her eldest daughter, Leanne. She's wonderful. She's legitimately the most caring person I've ever met. She bakes, she quilts. She quilts like crazy. She, we have so many blankets around our house that she made. I'll be. Yes. She's just quiet and keeps to herself. And she worked closely with police departments. She edits and puts together the online trainings for police officers in three different states. So she works with police departments all the time? Yes. She talks to them on the phone all day, every day. Leanne was 10 when her mom was seeing Corey Winicky. What was he like? In your recollection? Loud. Huh. That, that's what I remember. Boisterous. Yes, just just funny. We would go to Winks with my mom and, and play pool right. while, while they hung out. And when Corey was murdered, it tore her mother apart, said Leanne. She was a mess. She was a mess. She was devastated. Now, more than two decades later, would Annette still be willing to talk? When he was sure Annette was home... Detective Turbot knocked, his audio recorder rolling. Hi, Annette. Yes. John Turbot with the DCI. How are Hi, you doing? Thank you. Annette was friendly, welcoming even. They chatted about this and that. I understand you had some travels recently? We did. And then Turbot changed the subject. I know it feels a little bit out of left field for you, but we're looking at this and we say, well, obviously you were close to, to Corey. And as you said, this has been, um, you've been waiting for, for news on this. So what I want to do is, is to share some of those recent developments with you. To which Annette said, essentially, good, tell me all. Not knowing, she said, it had been so painful. I was going to die not knowing. Yeah. And I accepted it. Yeah. Several years ago, it was... You have to accept it. Yeah. You can still have that little bit of hope, but it kills you to wait for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's still, uh, it's still very, very painful. Then, Turbot's next step, a question he hoped wouldn't scare her off. Could they continue their chat at the local sheriff's office? I really am. I'm happy to help. Thank you. No hesitation. Well, thanks a lot for stopping down. Grab the water. Oh, thank you. Kevin. All very pleasant. But then... She puts the stopwatch on it. Oh, I have about an hour, so that's what I was going to tell you, that please ask the important stuff first if you need information. Um, I've got a department to start, and I've got two lessons to finish. My goodness. Whenever someone gives the police uh, a time frame, like, I can... You got five minutes, you got ten minutes. Boy, that's... um, Talk about raising flags. Still, interviewer Turbot proceeded, adopted a, well, you could call it a therapist's empathy. And she seemed to be like an open book. Do you remember when you first met him? I first met Corey when he was 16 and I was 25. It was French at that point. How long does that take for that to to become romantic or sexual? Um, Three years. And it never, we didn't have sex at that time. We just... He took me home from the bar one night and messed around, kissing in the car. How many times do you think you had sex with Corey? Are we talking like uh, hundreds? Three, four, five times a week. Okay. A lot. 
And where would that take place at? That takes place in his car, in Denny's truck, outside during the summer, the apartment above Winks, in Winks, um, wherever we could find the time and the place. They were true lovers, as she told police back then. And she made no secret that she hoped one day they'd be more than that. We had talked about skipping town. Um, in fact, the week after he died, we were supposed to go to Branson to look at Mars for sale. Did you like the idea of going with him, oh, uh, yeah. of moving with him? Yes. The plan was no. not to take Jody. So what would he say about that? Just that he was done. He, he was done with the town. And you told me, you said you were madly in love. I right? was. Yeah, so you, um, were, you were ready to take that, yeah. take that stuff with him. But then, before Turbot could bring up Corey's murder. I do have to leave in just a few minutes here. I've got like two and a half hours of work. Me, you let me know. It sounds like you're super busy. So when she left, I said, hey, I really appreciate your time, but could we get back together tomorrow and find a way to, to finish this up? And she said, yes. And I thought, great, great. Let's get you to the front door. Thanks so much. But next day, right before they were scheduled to meet, she canceled now all of a sudden, I'm not maybe going to make myself available, right? I'm, I'm, I'm busy. No interview. When Leanne learned police had talked to her mom, she was surprised, but... I never thought anything would come of it. Maybe, or maybe not. The Annette the detectives met seemed to remember Corey as the love of her life. But memory, remember, is tricky. Memory can add or erase. And what did Annette remember, really, about that night when she thought no one was listening? Coming up, for investigators, a riveting and revealing moment. He had this other girl with us, and I was mad. I was incredibly mad. How dare you? We saw the anger and the intensity and everything coming to a head. When Dateline continues... America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Hey guys, Willie Geist here, reminding you to check out the Sunday Sit-Down Podcast. On this week's episode, I get together with seven-time Grammy winner Casey Musgraves to talk about the inspiration for her new album, the process she uses to write those beautiful songs, and finding success while bucking convention in Nashville. You can get our conversation now for free wherever you download your podcasts. Annette Cahill's grief still seemed raw during her first recorded interview with Detective John Turbot. I loved Corey dearly. I really, really did. The woman he encountered didn't seem like a violent killer. She lived a quiet, ordered life, worked for police departments, sewed quilts for her grandkids. But the detective still had more questions for her. 
Problem was, Annette wasn't making herself available. I realized at some point, if this is going to happen, it's not going to happen because Annette's picking up the phone saying, hey, could I continue that conversation? So I go back uh, and knock on the door. Hey. hey, how are you doing? Good, how are you? And once again, Annette invited him in. At first, it was all very cordial. But then she had a complaint. I'll answer any question yeah. that is absolutely pertinent. Yeah. But questions like, how many times did you and Corey have sex? doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Well, so here's where you're not a detective, and I am, right? They sat down in Annette's living room. Detective Turbot picked up where he left off, events leading up to Corey's murder. I want to hear everything and, and nothing's too small. It was closing time. 2 a.m., she said, October 13, 1992. She pretty much staggered out of the bar and slid into the passenger seat of Corey's Cadillac, waiting for him to close up and join her. She had expectations. I got very, very drunk that night. Could not drive home. Corey was going to take me home. But when Corey finally appeared at the car, he was with another woman. For the life of me, I can't remember the girl, but she was in the car with us. The girl police had known all along was Wendy, who was one of his younger conquests. He was going to drop Annette off and go home with Wendy? So yes, she told the detective she was furious. I made him stop the car. I said, you, I'm walking home because he had this other girl with us and I was mad, I was incredibly mad. How dare you? You're gonna take me, drop me off and go home with her. So right then and there, she said, she decided he'd have to make up his mind. Did Corey really want to run away with her or was it over? You know the old saying, fish or cut bait? I wanted really badly to fish or cut bait. But unless he told me to go to hell in reality, I would have put up with this for years. More than likely. Could he have hurt you any worse that night if, if, I mean, the thing with Wendy would have been extremely hurtful to you? Oh, well, yeah. That's why I wasn't going to allow it. That's why I got out of the car. Um, I wasn't going to be a part of it. Then the argument took a turn, and her whole world flipped again and was briefly wonderful. That was the very first night Corey ever told me he loved me. And I can't look back at that with any joy. What made that night so horrible when you tell me that, Annette? I told him, I'm nothing to you. And he yelled at me, you're not nothing to me, I love you. And the joy of hearing that. There was never, ever, ever after that moment another, I love you. That's what's so horrible. So Corey dropped off Wendy at her car and came to Annette's place instead. I think it was angry sex. And on my part, I was probably clean. I don't know. It's a very complex relationship. But was that the whole story? Turbot didn't think so. Got the feeling that she was leaving something out. I think Corey quite possibly has told her, you know, this isn't gonna, this yeah, isn't gonna work, done, right? Yeah. yeah, we're done. So she's told you part of the truth. I think we had maybe part of the truth. I think we saw the anger and the intensity of that fight uh, and everything coming to a head, you know, buying a bar together and running off and her being, you know, the new Jody, 
I think she saw that all, you know, going down in flames. What'd you do when Corey left then? Oh, probably passed out and everything. Then, when she found out Corey was dead, she went straight to the police. Was the reason why you you went in to talk to police? Was you were trying to help? But was she? That fish or cut bait remark. Corey saying he loved her, the business of the angry sex. The turbot, all those things together sounded almost like a confession. Like she was walking right up to it, but couldn't quite say it. And so, now was his moment, and he finally said it. The long-awaited reason for all these new questions. So in that, at this point, we have concluded the investigation into, into Corey's death. And the case facts show me that you do know what happened to Corey, that you were involved in that. There's just no other way. And let me just hear me out for a minute. Can you hear me out? No. This is going to stop. This is... Annette, this was a, you loved Corey very, very much. I still do. And I'm going to say one time. One time. Hang on a minute. No. Let me just, this let me, is my let, home. It is. You it will is. respect the boundaries here. I will. I Annette. didn't kill Corey. I Annette. never hurt Corey. Annette. I only ever wanted to make sure that whoever did kill Corey was caught. Annette, do the right thing. We are done. Nope. This is the right thing. No. I have tried to help for 25 years. We're not done. Yeah. I'll be back. We, no, not here. You won't. Oh, I will be. I'll be back. I'll be back. She throws me out of her house at this point. And that was it. The detectives conferred with the top prosecutor, Alan Ostergren. You hear this story and you and you say, what happened? Who? How? What? Repeat that. Yeah. And he explained it, and I thought, well, this is pretty tantalizing. Jesse's story was certainly a tantalizing piece of evidence, but enough to charge a woman with murder. When investigators eventually talked to that other little girl at the sleepover, Annette's niece, Kayla, she said she didn't remember that incident at all. So it all came down to Jesse, her story, her memory. Wouldn't you be worried that a jury would say, are you crazy? A nine-year-old, 27 right. years earlier, and you right. expect her to remember? I could have just as easily been a dream. Right, so there was no way I was just going to mm. charge off and arrest somebody for murder based on this by, by itself. Yeah. And I asked the agents, did she tell mom? And Jesse had come home from the sleepover and told her mom right away. At that point, I knew, you know, we're in business here because that's very powerful corroboration. So the prosecutor took a gamble and went for it. And just as Detective Turbot promised Annette, he did come back about a month later, this time with handcuffs and a warrant for her arrest. Turbot recorded the whole thing. So we're arresting on a warrant for murder in the first degree. And not too far away, Sheriff C.J. Ryan delivered the long-awaited news to Corey's parents. I said, that's where I belong. I'm going to go meet with the family simultaneously while that arrest is taking place. Well, what did they tell you when you got there? They had arrested somebody. That they had arrested somebody for Corey's murder. Yep. And I said, really? They said, yes. Uh, best moments in your career? 
That was probably one. So at long last, there would be a trial for the murder of Corey Winnicky. But what did the police have? Not a lick of forensic evidence and a circumstantial case built around a more than two decade old childhood memory. Coming up, the defense is confident arguing that Annette shouldn't even have been indicted. She passed a polygraph. She'd given fingerprints, and yet, on the word of a nine-year-old child, here we are. Leanne had just gotten off work when her phone lit up. It was a cousin. And she said, Leanne, your mom was arrested for murder. And my heart just dropped. Like, my whole world just felt like it was collapsing. And then you fell apart. And then I fell apart. Sorry. And it still hurts. Yeah. And when she got through to her mom of the county jail? She just wanted to tell me she loved me and to let me know that you know, don't give up on me, don't give up hope. Don't think that I did this. And of course, that, that never crossed my mind, not once. Annette found a respected attorney, since deceased. This is his partner, Liz Araguas. After we met with her, we just looked at each other and he said, are you in? And I said, I'm in, because we were so captivated by this. By the case or by her, or, or by her, or what? Both. It was just unbelievable that more investigation had not been done. Uh-huh. She'd passed a polygraph. She'd given fingerprints, palm prints, fiber samples, and yet, on the word of a nine-year-old child, here we are. It was just unfathomable. And in March 2019, Annette walked into a makeshift courtroom. We were in the midst of a courtroom renovation, and they ended up having that trial in the basement of a community services building. It was essentially a trial in a conference room. The state's chief piece of evidence? Jesse Becker's incredible story, witnessing the defendant light black candles at that sleepover all those years ago. So the strategy was um, to tell the story through the eyes of Jesse as best we could and also through the eyes of Annette Cahill. She's hurt, she's jealous, and she's angry. And hurt, jealousy, and anger can lead to murder. The state called Corey's one-time fiance, Jody, the woman who'd left town, the woman who tried so hard to leave it all behind her. She swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Jody took the stand to face Corey's alleged killer. Still emotional after all these years, a tearful Jody described the moment she found Corey's body on the bedroom floor. I couldn't see his face. His face was turned towards the bed, but I could see the rest of him. And there was, there was, there was blood and the, and the closet door and that kind of thing. Did you think he was dead? Um. Yeah. I touched him and said his name. I remember doing that, and of course, nothing. And The prosecutor told the jury about Annette's tumultuous relationship with Corey. 
how just hours before the murder, they had that huge fight over Corey's younger fling, Wendy. Instead of Jody being replaced by the defendant, the defendant's being replaced by Wendy. Corey ended up going back to Annette's, where they had angry sex, according to her. But what did Corey do after leaving Annette's? He didn't go back home to his fiancée, Jody. No. He climbed back into his Cadillac and drove off to see Wendy. Given how angry she is, given what she knows of the situation, is it beyond reason to think she goes over and sees that Cadillac at Wendy's? This night, the defendant was angry, hurt, and jealous. A murderous combination. Then he picked apart Annette's alibi. Not that she didn't have one, but the prosecutor said it seemed more to him like a conscious effort to create an alibi. Your sister-in-law Jackie's got some errands to run, and you might as well just go to Iowa City with Jackie for no real reason other than to ride around with her while she has errands to do. That doesn't make any sense. But one thing did, to the prosecutor at least. Annette and her sister-in-law said they stopped by Corey's house that morning on the way to Iowa City. Said he didn't answer the door. Now why would they say that? Unless they were worried somebody saw them. They put themselves at the crime scene. Okay, you know, that, that's, that's a big deal. Sure. So our theory at trial was the murder happened around roughly 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. I believe he was asleep slash passed out in bed and was struck in bed and, and had essentially no opportunity to defend himself. The state saved its star witness, Jesse Becker, for last. What was it like to testify? Um, well, I mean, that was my first time in a courtroom. Yeah. So Rather nervous, maybe. Yeah, it's terrible to sit across from a woman that, you know, used to adore, um, but, you know, killed someone in Um, and testify. Can you describe what you saw and what you heard? She was lighting black candles and sobbing and crying and um, apologizing to Corey. And she said, I'm so sorry, Corey. I never meant to hurt you. You I loved you, Corey. I never meant to kill you. And I'm so sorry for killing you, Corey. And when you heard that, what did you think? I was terrified. I was scared that we were, that she was going to turn around and see us. Um, and I, I didn't know exactly what she was saying or why she would be talking like that. And I, I didn't know at that time that she'd had a relationship with Corey. To back up Jessie's story, her mother Cynthia testified. She had saw Annette lighting black candles. And the prosecutor addressed that big question. Why didn't she tell anyone? Why didn't you pick up the phone and call the police? Because I was scared. My ex-husband was still in this area. Um, He had threatened me many times before. Afraid of an ex-husband who, remember, had an affair with the defendant. The defense argued that gave Jesse's mom an axe to grind against Annette which could have influenced young Jessie. As a little girl, she knew about this love affair, and these aren't people that like Annette very much. 
you're walking up to something that sounds like an accusation that she was either lying or had a story implanted in her head by her angry mother. I think children are very suggestible. Cynthia denied that defense theory. Anyway, the defense's big point was simple, that a child's memory, that old, couldn't be trusted. All of us have something from our childhood that we think we remember, that, we, that our siblings do not corroborate, or our parents say, sure. that never happened. Aside from that memory story, said the defense, the state had basically nothing. No physical evidence at all. They could have done some further DNA testing, said the defense, but they didn't. There is a failure to produce any physical evidence linking her to this crime, let alone linking her to striking Corey Winicky with a bat. Not one scrap of real incriminating evidence. The defense thought the state's case was so thin, they elected not to put up witnesses of their own. A case awash in reasonable doubt, said the veteran defense attorney. They're searching, they're grasping, 26 years after the crime. So, who would you believe? The jury, looking very serious, withdrew to contemplate that very thing. Coming up, what that jury had to say. Ooh. Wow. That's what I said. Wow. And later, a chance encounter leads to a brand new blockbuster witness. He says, you know, I can't believe I wasn't called. I think I have a piece of this story that needs to be told. When Dateline continues. Nearly all day, the jury deliberated, debating Jesse's credibility. The accuracy of old memories? No one knew. And with each passing hour, the prosecutor's confidence sagged. I thought it could go either way, frankly. I had the feeling standing up there giving that closing argument that some people are really receptive to what I'm saying and some people were not. His intuition was right. After lunch, the second day, the jury sent out a note. They were hopelessly, unalterably deadlocked. Uh, declare the jury hung. The judge declared a mistrial. It's, it's a gutting feeling. Sure. I yeah. think I started yeah. crying right away. Oh, I was yeah. so disappointed. We were really upset. The prosecutor learned those 12 jurors were close to acquitting in that. Nine to three to acquit. Ooh. Wow. That's what I said. Wow. In fact, the first vote was 11 to 1 to acquit. So before he risked it all again, he knew he needed more. And, as if from thin air, more suddenly appeared. Susie Winicky just happened to bump into an old friend. She just said, well, it's too bad they've never wanted to talk to my son. He's never wavered his story. And I said, who is your son? And she said, Scott Payne. Scott Payne? Why hadn't the new investigation turned him up? And of course, we're looking around the room with the, and who talked to Scott Payne, right? I mean, obviously none of us had, and here he is. And Scott says, you know, I, I can't believe I wasn't called. I basically think I have a piece of this story that needs to be told. His story? He said he was part of Jackie and Annette's circle of friends. And shortly after Corey's murder, he was at their house, drinking and getting high. When? Annette Cahill drives up to the house, and she gets out of the car, 
pulls a bag out of the trunk, and pulls bloody clothes out of the bag. A sensational story, but would anybody believe it from a man who admitted he was actually high at the time? Still, six months after the mistrial, Prosecutor Ostergren took the plunge. I'll rise for the jury. Trial number two had the same cast of characters. Corey's fiance um, Jody. Well, I was scared. Of course, Jesse Becker. Well, we heard Annette crying and sobbing in the dining area. And Wendy, Corey's other woman. She was mad and tried to open the door, acted like she was going to open the door and jump out of the car. Yes, sir. Plus, this time, a new witness. Scott Payne and his story about the bloody clothes. What would the jury make of him? He was in a terrible accident at a salvage yard where he was working and blew himself up. We looks in rough shape, no question. The prosecutor confronted his drug and alcohol issue head on. Back in that time period, were you a drinker? Yes, heavily. And then Scott told the jury his story. She got out of the car and opened the trunk and took a paper bag with clothes in it and dumped them out. And Annette, or, uh, Jackie met her out at the burn barrel with a gas can and they lit the clothing on fire. Now, did you notice anything about the clothing? They looked to be bloodstained. How would he know it was covered in blood? Did he go up and feel it? Did he look at what? Well, I asked him that question. How is it, Mr. Payne, that you could tell that they were bloodstained? I worked on a farm butchering hogs. I know what bloodstained clothes look like. Defense attorney Liz Araguas was distinctly unimpressed. Scott Payne credible? Not in the least, she said. In fact, he was interviewed by police back during the first investigation, and then he didn't say a word about Annette burning bloody clothes. Nothing in the story that you heard from Scott Payne makes sense, and his story should be totally disregarded. Were you worried about him as a witness? Not really. I mean, his story is inflammatory, certainly, but it doesn't jive with words out of his own mouth to the original investigation team. Besides, the defense had something else. Four unidentified hairs found clutched in Corey Winnicky's dead hand. DNA testing today could quite possibly reveal whose they were, but the state did not test them. So they didn't test these hairs. They could test these hairs. They don't want to test these hairs. That's essentially the message. And we were able to present at trial to the jury how lacking this investigation was. There was no new testing done on anything. I don't know that any boxes at the lab were even opened except to pull the bat for trial. And so when Nett stands here today to say, test those hairs, test them. And this time the defense called a witness, Annette's sister-in-law, Jackie Hazen, who testified she was running errands with Annette at the time of the murder. We decided to put Jackie on the stand to talk about their itinerary on that day. Uh, I know we went to Kmart, I believe, um, Long John Silver's to eat. That was my favorite place. Uh, we went to the mall. But when Annette was arrested in 2018, Jackie actually admitted to police she may not have been completely honest with them years ago. Do you feel like you may have lived a little after that? I may have. I, I don't remember doing it, but I may have. 
And you bet the prosecutor went after her on the stand about that. But Jackie stuck with Annette and denied wavering. You said it was possible that you had said some things at the court's murder to protect Annette, right? No. Hard to know if Jackie's testimony hurt or helped, but the defense was still optimistic. Well, we knew that the original jury had been heavily in favor of not guilty. My job does not require that I believe my client is innocent, but I believe in that Cahill is innocent. The jurors trooped out, closed the door, and stayed there. And after two days of deliberation, they too declared that they were hopelessly deadlocked. Do you believe the jury is able to reach a unanimous verdict? No. Another low moment, and, f- and frankly, lower than the, the first one. Could he actually mount a third trial? And then in the tension of that moment, the judge addressed the jury. Maybe this wasn't dead yet. Coming up, a deadlock broken. Members of the jury, have you reached a unanimous verdict? Yes. And a courtroom shaken. It was surreal, truly surreal. It was a moment of high drama as the judge contemplated a second jury deadlock and heard from the defense. We asked the judge to declare a mistrial, declare it a hung jury again. And the prosecution. There was just something about how the jury was acting when they came into the courtroom where I felt like they were giving up sooner than they should. Perhaps the judge saw the same thing. Please take the night, get some rest. Go home, he told the jury. Get some sleep and try again in the morning. They did. And what do you know? They had a verdict after lunch. Members of the jury, have you reached a unanimous verdict? Yes. Could you please provide the verdict form to the court attendant? In the matter of State of Iowa versus Annette Cahill, we the jury find the defendant Annette Cahill guilty of the crime of murder in the second degree. And there it was, guilty. Not first, but second degree murder. That's the happiest, in court that day is the happiest I've seen him when he read that (laughs) in years. It's a relief in one way, you know. Just when you thought, well, this was never gonna happen. And on the other side of the courtroom? It was surreal. It was truly surreal. It was horrifying. Not what you expected? No. You really thought she was gonna walk? Of course, yeah. Annette's daughter couldn't be there for the verdict. My fiance texted me and said, I'm so sorry. And I said, what? And he said, the jury came back. Your mom was found guilty. Was just completely devastated. That was one of the hardest things I've ever had to read. In your darkest nights, have you ever thought, man, maybe she did, maybe she did? No, I really haven't. I know my mom better than, better than anything. She's just not a violent person. She's not an angry person. Annette was sentenced to up to 50 years in prison. I am very, very sorry to her family. Annette's family. They're very nice people. I want them to know that I'm not mad at any of them, and I feel very, very sorry that they had to go through this. 
Sheriff C.J. Ryan retired soon thereafter, happy that a promise made was kept. They always had faith. I mean, I always had a very, very good relationship with them because they knew that we weren't going to give up. We told them we weren't going to give up. And they believed it. In the end, we showed them it was true. Well, the law and Jesse Becker, she and her mom Cynthia went to see the Winnicky family after the verdict. You went there to apologize. Yeah, I told him, I'm like, I'm sorry. And uh, Jim gave me a big hug and he goes, it's okay, we understand. They understood, you know, why it took so long to share that information. Lots of hugs, lots of tears. And a thank you for the girl who didn't forget, whose credibility persuaded a detective, a DA, and a jury to believe. At the end of the day, if you do what's right, that's how you go to sleep at night. So, um, you know, regardless, it's what needed to be shared, what needed to be done. How does it feel knowing that you had this impact on this case? Um, great. I mean, uh, I still feel bad that it was 20-some years later. Sure. Um, you know, and... But without you, it wouldn't happen at all. Right, yeah. Because once, when she was nine, she learned the secret that was buried in the prairie soil. The secret about her adored neighbor, Corey. And she exposed it to the light of day and justice. That's all for this edition of Dateline. We'll see you again next Friday at 9, 8 central. And of course, I'll see you each weeknight for NBC Nightly News. I'm Lester Holt for all of us at NBC News. Good night. Dateline Friday, murder in broad daylight. This entire shopping center was filled with people. You can see blood spots on the pavement. The child was still sitting in the back seat. A most unlikely killer. (laughs) Why did you do it? An all-new Dateline, Friday at 9, 8 central, only on NBC.